This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. I don't know what your reaction has been the last couple of weeks to these events happening in the United States. Um, I have to tell you, I feel deeply disturbed and very angry seeing um, this evidence of injustice and violence. And we need to remember that our God is a God of justice who also feels an anger, a much holier, more righteous anger than any of us experience at oppression and injustice in his world. We want our thoughts and actions to be formed, not by partisan politics, but by the word of God and hear what God himself has to say. So this is why we're turning to Isaiah chapter 58. And let's read this chapter together. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. For day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is this what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. 
and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. You know, the prophets are not comfortable books to read. And we prefer to mine them for prophecies about the future and speculations about the end times. But these messengers of God speak his word to his people now. And of course, we would much rather ignore God's searing condemnation of his people's sins. And you know, down through the centuries, God's people have always preferred the false prophets who speak smooth things, who only have comforting words to say, to announce peace, peace, when there is no peace. But the true prophet of God was not allowed to adjust his words to avoid giving offense to his hearers. And God commands Isaiah not only to speak truth, but to shout it aloud and not hold back, to lift his voice like a trumpet and shatter the quiet complacency of God's people, Israel. Judgment always begins with the people of God. And I'm sure Israel much preferred hearing the words of judgment on Moab and Edom, on Assyria and Babylon, Babylon and the rest of their enemies. And of course, we can all get behind condemning the sins of the godless world out there. We can join in that and join in with enthusiasm. And the prophets certainly speak to the sins of the world around Israel because God cares about wickedness and injustice everywhere in his world. But precisely because Israel is God's people, they're the ones who bear the brunt of God's anger against injustice. And they tell themselves that God's favor gives them a pass. But actually, God holds Israel and he holds his church to a much higher standard because we are the people who claim to know and obey the God of justice. Now, reading these first verses of Isaiah 58, Israel seems to be spiritually healthy. They're seeking God, and they're not just seeking God. They're seeking him day after day. They're crying out for the presence of God. And they seem very eager to know God's ways. They are hungering to be taught his word. In fact, they're fasting, and they're humbling themselves so that God will draw near to them. Really, this seems like a season of genuine spiritual hunger. And if we saw Christians anywhere fasting and seeking God like this, we would be convinced that revival was just around the corner. But revival is not happening, and God is not showing up. And the people are discouraged, and they're disappointed, and they're asking themselves, why is it that we fasted and humbled ourselves, but God is still not drawing near? And there is just a tinge of self-righteous complaints in this, as though they're doing everything right, and somehow it's God's problem that he's not responding properly to their actions. And God says, well, 
If you really want to hear, let me tell you exactly why I refuse to listen to you, why I shut my ears to your prayers and will not draw near to you. I'll tell you, but I'm not going to promise you're going to like my answer. Because on a parallel track, alongside the people's quest for God's presence is violence and exploitation. Parallel tracks that never touch and never meet. Because Israel has convinced themselves that personal spirituality has nothing to do with social justice. They're in completely sealed compartments. And perhaps they even convinced themselves that choosing worship over justice made them more God-centered. Just like many Christian leaders who refused to raise their voice like a trumpet against injustice because in their minds, the church should only preach the gospel and the church should concern itself only with private spirituality. And this idea goes back a long ways. It goes back to, in America, to before the Civil War, when pastors and ministers in the South uh, convinced themselves that the church should not address the question of slavery, because obviously it would have been deeply costly to any leader to speak the truth about racial injustice and oppression at that time. And so they developed this doctrine they called the spirituality of the church. And they said, the church ought only to concern itself with matters of the soul, only with spiritual concerns. Anything to do with society and justice, that belongs to political leaders in the political realm that is not the business of the church. And that's the solution they came up with to allow themselves to salve their conscience and imagine that they were acting as a Christian church. And honestly, that idea of the spirituality of the church has one that has infected conservative Christians in North America and really around the world ever since. God does not accept these kind of excuses, however noble they might sound. He says, no justice, no worship. Do not claim to love me. If you treat your neighbor whom I have created in my image with contempt. As long as you tolerate injustice, your sacrifices and offerings are a stench in my nostrils and your prayers make me want to vomit. This is not acceptable among the people of God and I'm going to stay far off until you repent and change. Our God is a God who is passionately committed to justice. And he tells Israel, you have no understanding of my character, of the character of the God that you imagine you're seeking and that you claim to know. Justice is at the very center of God's character. He is the rock. His works are perfect, Deuteronomy 32, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just, is he. Justice is not something that God created on a temporary basis. Justice is who God is, who God always has been, and who he always 
will be. And he created this world on a foundation of justice and God's own rightness and order undergird the universe. And now because of the fall, because of human sin, our race has brought into this world disorder and violence and oppression and injustice into God's good world. And we imagine that sin is private and personal and only has to do with individuals, but human sin infects everything we touch. Sinful people build sinful societies. And then those structures take on an evil of their own. God's commitment to justice hasn't wavered. But now justice for God will involve intervening in a world that is broken. And justice for God means fixing that broken world and setting everything to rights. Now, this kind of talk makes many conservative Christians very nervous. And they're afraid that those, anyone really who talks about social justice is some kind of closet Marxist who doesn't trust the Bible and perhaps has already abandoned the gospel. And frankly, that is nonsense. And we should be committed to justice precisely because we do bow to the word of God and the good news about Jesus. Probably none of you were keeping track, but last week was my 100th sermon at TICF, and you should all congratulate yourself for <laughs> listening to me speak so much. But I hope in those many, many sermons, I have at least earned your trust that I'm a Bible guy and I'm a Jesus guy. And this sermon is not me going off the rails. This is not an exception to that rule. It might be going in a direction that we're not used to hearing, but this is all about the word of God, and this is all about the good news of Jesus. Justice and righteousness are present throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, there are these twin words that we see again and again together. One is tzedakah, which is usually translated righteousness. And this is righteousness is about alignment with what is straight squaring up to the way that God has ordered his world. To be righteous means that you recognize that you're living in relationships. You're living in relationship with God. You're living in relationship with your neighbors and your world. And a righteous person is someone who not only knows that fact, but lives up to the obligations that those relationships create. A righteous man or woman or child is someone who is living in peace and harmony with their neighbors, their land, their employees, and even their animals. Righteousness is about more than doing no harm. I mean, that's the basic minimum, not hurting other people. But there is a positive side to being a righteous person. A righteous man or a woman is someone who chooses the good of the community over their self-interest. Listen to these words from Job chapter 29. Let me share it on my screen here. This is Job's protest that uh, he is a righteous man. And let's hear the evidence that he gives for what righteousness means in his life. Job 29 verses 12 to 17. Job says, I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them. 
The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. That's what it means to be a righteous person, to involve yourself in the world and to begin to put things right that are horribly wrong. It's not about keeping your head down and being a moral person before God while being blind to the suffering of the world around you. Because loving God is only half of the law. The other half is loving your neighbor as yourself. And Job spent himself caring for his neighbors. And so are all of God's people. So there's that first word, righteousness, aligning yourself with what is straight. But there's another word that almost always goes alongside it in the Old Testament, and that's the Hebrew word mishpat, which is usually translated justice or judgment. And uh, brings up this obvious legal sense, judges or people who are in the justice system and they ought to punish criminals. And that's true, but that's, that's way too limiting. Um, justice has a much broader meaning than that. Here's what Chris Wright says. In the widest sense, justice means to put things right, to intervene in a situation that is wrong, oppressive, or out of control, and to fix it. So think about the Old Testament book of Judges. We have a whole book about judges. And men and women like Samson and Deborah, you'll find when you read that book, they didn't spend much time sitting on the bench, wearing a wig, hammering a gavel. They judged, they brought justice by going into battle and delivering Israel from the hands of the oppressor. Justice and judgment are what we need to happen when righteousness is lacking when people are no longer living squared up with the way that God made the world. And justice is what every human being has a right to expect from the rulers that God has put over us. And that's why it is such an outrage when we see police officers twisting and abusing their authority when they can murder defenseless people with impunity when they can kill people confident that unjust laws and a compromised system will protect them and enable their violence. And you know, there are thousands, there are tens of thousands of murders that happen every year. And you have to ask ourselves, why is it that these cases in particular make us feel so angry? And I think it's because when police officers do these things, it threatens the confidence that we ought to have that evil will be punished, and that law enforcement will protect the citizens it should be serving instead of harming them. And when the justice system itself, in any country, becomes a tool of violence and exploitation and racism, every Christian who knows their God should burn with anger. God burns with anger when he sees these things. He's not cold. He's not neutral. He's not detached when it comes to injustice. God promises he will step in with power and put things right. 
He will take down the violence, the violent who use power and the law and the system to oppress the poor, and he will step into the defense, to the defense of those who suffer. Really in the West, we have this image of justice, this literal image of the blindfolded Greek goddess holding the scales in her hands. But it's wrong to think of God as blindfolded and neutral. Again and again in the Old Testament, and I could give you easily, literally hundreds of examples, we see that God sides squarely with the widow and the orphan, with the foreigner and the dispossessed. Standing on the sidelines, dispassionate and observing, the Lord works vindication and justice for all who are oppressed. Psalm 103. And the Bible teaches us that anyone who harms the poor attacks their maker. And they should expect God to bring vengeance on their heads. God is a God who cares deeply about social justice. And Israel was called to put this justice into practice in their own society. Here's the origin story of Israel. They were rescued from the grinding misery of slavery in Egypt. God stepped in for them and rescued them from oppression. And therefore, they were commanded to have a special care for the weak and the poor among them and not to forget where they came from or what God did for them. So if you read the Old Testament laws, the Israelites, for example, they were not allowed to charge interest on loans or to sell food at a profit to their fellow Israelites who had fallen into poverty. And during the different grain harvests, they were commanded to leave the crops on the edges and the corners of their field ungathered, to leave them standing, don't even touch them, don't maximize the profit from your farm, leave the edges and corners of your land unreaped so that the poor can collect that food and feed themselves. And similarly, the, food, the fruit that would just fall naturally from your olive tree or your grapevine, you were not allowed to pick it up from the land. It had to be left there for the poor to gather. And every 50 years, God commanded that there be a year of jubilee, a moment of economic equalization for all Israelites. No matter what kind of trouble you had gotten into, no matter what poor financial decisions you or your parents had made, once in a generation, there was an opportunity for things to be reset back the way they ought to be. And land that had been sold off, the family inheritance that had been lost because of financial distress was returned back to its original owners. And Israelites who had been forced to sell themselves into indentured servitude for their debts were freed. That was the year of Jubilee. And... We're not sure if this was ever practiced in Israel because very quickly people go back to systems of injustice that favor the rich and the powerful, but this was the way things ought to have been. So God says, if you align yourself with this kind of God who cares about these kinds of things, and if you yourself have experienced God stepping into your weakness and poverty to put you right, you are now called to join him and helping to put the world around you to rights to the best of your ability. It's not just about refraining from personal injustice yourself, but tackling injustice wherever you see it. 
Look at Isaiah 58 again. God commands Israel, loose the chains of injustice wherever you can. Not just the ones you have forged yourself. Share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter, even if their struggles were not directly caused by you, even if you're tempted to blame the poor and the hungry for their own problems, you are responsible for stepping in and helping them. Theologians distinguish between sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission means doing things that we shouldn't have done. And those things are generally more obvious to our conscience. What we often forget are our sins of omission. And a sin of omission is not doing what you should have done. And one of the things we ought to do and so often omit is caring for the poor and the hungry and the stranger. And God, through his word, reminds us that we have a responsibility toward everyone in this world who is suffering because they are all our neighbors. God is a just God. And for God, righteousness and justice means stepping into a fallen world to put things right, to fix a situation that he did not cause, and to remedy injustices that he has not put into place. God steps in to fix those things. And he does so by sending his son into the world. He sends Jesus to be the true responsible for enacting real justice in his kingdom. Turn with me for a second to Isaiah chapter 42. Let me share just the first four verses of that chapter with you on my screen here. Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. And Matthew 12 quotes this passage and applies it to Jesus. Jesus came to bring real justice in this world. And we have to be very careful that we don't spiritualize or privatize these words as if they only have to do with our souls and our private relationship with God. Jesus was sent into the world to fix the problems of violence and injustice and oppression that human sin has created. And we cry out to him to come again to fix all the problems of our broken world. Jesus came to announce good news to the poor and hope for the oppressed. And if you look at the beginning of Luke's gospel, especially, and the songs that are sung there by Zechariah and Mary and Simeon, they're singing of God having brought forth salvation, of bringing justice for the oppressed, bringing the lofty and the proud from the, down from their high, high places and raising the needy from the ash heap. And Jesus, this true king, this prince of peace, he spoke while he was on this earth of the kingdom of God, the realm where true justice and salvation happen. 
And this is a kingdom populated by those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice. It's populated by those who show mercy to the poor, by those who are peacemakers who seek lasting reconciliation. And he told his disciples, seek first the kingdom of God and its justice. You know, when you look at the Gospels, you see the concern of Jesus for the poor and his expectation that those who follow him will have the same concern that he does. Think about Jesus' famous parable of the sheep and the goats, the day of judgment, when Jesus sits on his throne and summons those who claim to be his disciples before him. And most of us have been taught as good evangelicals that when we appear before the judgment seat of God and he asks us, why should I let you into heaven? That we should claim the righteousness of Jesus and say that um, we're sinful people and everything he's done is going to cover over our sins. End of story. But if you look at that parable, Jesus says nothing of that. He points to how we act. His judgment at the end of history, when we stand before him, is based on how, whether or not we fed the hungry, whether we gave drink to the thirsty, whether we welcomed the stranger, clothed the naked, and visited the prisoner. That's the basis for divine judgment. And that's the evidence of true faith in Jesus. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, or holds up a Bible before the cameras, or does the religious things, is going to be automatically led into the kingdom. It's those who do acts of justice and mercy in this world. And if we are neglecting those acts, if we are forgetting about the poor and ignoring the hungry, then we are in danger of standing before Jesus and hearing his damning words, away from me, I never knew you. Isaiah 58 is a severe rebuke to the hypocritical people of God. But it also contains an invitation and a promise. Because God says, if you truly repent, and if you really do seek justice, I promise that your light will break forth like the dawn. God promises a fresh beginning, a new Pentecost, and revival from heaven. If you look at verse 9, he says, then you will call and the Lord will answer. Justice for the poor results in free communication between God, prompt response to our prayers and our cries. And God goes on to say in verse 10, that if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry, then your light will rise in the darkness. If you spend yourselves, because true justice is costly. You know, it's very cheap and easy to posture on social media, to signal our virtue with a Facebook post or a tweet. And it's especially easy to do that about problems in other countries that we have no responsibility for. But this is not the true heart for justice. Righteousness involves speaking, of course, but it also involves spending ourselves for the needs of others. 
And when we do that, when we take care of the needs of others, God promises he will take care of us. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. Seek first the kingdom of God and his justice, and all these things will be added to you. And if we're these kinds of people, we will be given the most honorable of titles, a repairer of broken walls, a restorer of streets with dwellings, participating in God's own work of rebuilding a broken world, sharing in the triune God's own mission to bring shalom, to bring peace into this world. We're joining with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit to speak the gospel and to work out the gospel of peace in the midst of brokenness and oppression. The gospel is all about injustice. And our Lord died on the cross as the innocent victim of imperial injustice. He died as a despised racial minority, violently killed by Roman law enforcement. But this unjust death of an innocent man was also the manifestation of God's saving justice. God's commitment to step into the world in the most costly of ways to put a shattered humanity back together. God himself in Jesus becomes the victim of human injustice in order to bring about God's justice. And that is at the heart of the Christian story. That's the gospel we believe, and that is the gospel that we preach. You know, I would love to have a nice tidy conclusion at the end of this message with all the neat ends tied off and send you and myself comforted to our Sunday dinners. But really this meditation is just the beginning of a journey. And this journey begins, I think, with grieving and lamenting injustice in this world. And there is massive injustice in this world, and there's a long list of different kinds. And we need to begin by listening to the Holy Spirit, begin by praying that the Holy Spirit would show each of us how he is calling us to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. It begins with listening. If we long for the power and the presence of God in our midst, if we are longing and praying for revival, the pursuit of justice is not optional because we serve a God of righteousness. Let's pray and ask for his help. Righteous, holy, just God, we bow before you and submit ourselves afresh to you. We want more than anything to live in a just world, but we have to confess that we ourselves are deeply compromised by injustice. If not by our direct action, by our indifference and our lack of concern for those who are suffering around us. 
We ask for your forgiveness, O Lord. We ask for your personal restoration. Help us to share your own heart for those who suffer. Not because we are listening to partisan political voices around us who are seeking their own leverage and their own power, but because we are listening to your spirit and we care about what you care about, O Lord. We ask that you would give us soft and tender hearts to suffering. Open our eyes and open our ears to the plight of the poor and to the cry of the oppressed. And Lord, show us how we are to act, how we are to respond, how we are to step in. Keep our hearts from growing cold and callous. Guard us from the excuses that we all make to protect ourselves and our own interests and not to be involved. And Lord, we know that injustice in the world is far too great for human beings to tackle on their own. Keep us from the danger of thinking that we can fix these problems without a massive move of your Holy Spirit in our own lives and in the life of the world. But in the meantime, Lord, we ask that your church would be a faithful witness to what it means to be just and righteous in this world. Help us to speak true words of hope, not just pious platitudes, but true words of hope in a God who acts on behalf of those who are oppressed. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, come quickly and rescue a fallen, sinful, broken, and suffering world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at ticf-georgia.org. Thanks for listening.